Can we thank the band for leading us in worship this morning? Yeah, that's great. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open those to Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 3 should be on the screen for you. I love screens. Um, Problematically, I love screens. Sometimes I avoid them. Uh, One of our neighbors invited me to come watch the Tennessee-Florida game with her yesterday. She is a Florida fan. I respectfully declined. Uh, I have no need to watch that ever. My Texas and A&M fans know how that feels. It would be like if an Arkansas fan invited you to their home. It's very awkward. Uh, It's been a rough week, folks. we're in the book of Jonah. Uh, screens are very interesting for us. One of the more popular shows that we have dealt with over the last uh, probably 30 years is the show American Idol. Maybe, just maybe, you watched American Idol. Anybody, can we just confess to that? We remember calling in, letting people know that we thought that Kelly Clarkson, because she was from Texas, should win American Idol. Or you maybe you voted for Ruben Studdard. I don't know who you really liked on American Idol. I remember having my phone calling. I remember watching every single week. I remember thinking, this person is good. This person is terrible. I remember thinking, why do the same songs get sung every single season? One of the most popular songs used on American Idol is by a lady by the name of Bonnie Tyler. And the song is called, Of the Heart. Maybe you're familiar with it. And by maybe, I mean you are. Turn around, bright eyes. (laughs) Recurring sound of turn around, turn around, turn around. When we meet together in Jonah chapter 3, we are finally seeing him turn Around And as we look at the idea of Jonah turning around, because this is not just a message but a mirror, we would be challenged by this thought that turning to God means turning from yourself or turning from you. Turning to God means turning from you. It's really hard to consider the idea that God would ask me to turn from myself. That he would ask me not to place my trust in myself. Not to place my hope in myself. Not to place my joy in myself. But that I would turn to someone greater for all of those things. Turning around means that I'm turning from something as well as to something. So we're in Jonah chapter 3. Let me read this over us from the book of Jonah chapter 3. Feel free to follow along with me on the screen. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city, and he proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. And then the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and the Lord and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Now the word reached the king of Nineveh. He got up from his throne, he took off his royal robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. 
They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth. And everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and away from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions. That they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. And he did not do it. When we read through the story of Jonah, as we have uh, thought over the last couple of weeks, we see that it has been made into a whale story. And we miss the idea that maybe there's something that is bigger taking place than even that well. Maybe there's something that is at work in this passage that would show us not just a story that we can decorate our children's rooms with, but a story about God, the nature, the character of God, His mercy, His compassion, His grace. And maybe that story about God would be a story that would resonate in my heart and in yours in regard to the way that I happen to be looking at the world in which I live. That it would change the way that I see my neighbor. That it would change the way that I see my friend. That it would change the way that I see a a community of faith like this. That the idea of the message of God would be something that that matters to us. Because God, for whatever reason, has chosen to be compassionate and merciful toward us. One commentator says about Jonah, Jonah's not running from his life. Rather, he's not running from for his life. He's running from it. The idea of running from what God would have you to do and who God would have you to be and why God would have you to do that and why God would have you to be that. The story of running from God runs throughout the Bible. We look in the book of Genesis and Adam, he ran from God. He hid from God. Moses tried to hide from the call of God by saying to him, hey, just take my brother and let him be the one that's in charge of this. We see places where Isaiah hides. There is a recurring theme, Elijah hiding from God. The idea that God would have you to be something and have you to do something. Jonah running from God is nothing new. And you and me running from God is nothing new. The reason that a story like this should really settle into our souls as we gather together around the Word of God this morning is this. The idea of those of us who are regular, church-going people... If that Jonah is continuing to run from God when we see him in chapter 3, all the while doing what God has told him to do. We like nice, clean lines. And for whatever reason, we like to think of the sins of others as things that are worthy of judgment. And miss that our sins can still bring us to places like this. That your sin can still have you involved in a life group or discipleship group. That your sin can still have you being polite in the face of uh, difficulty. Then we can settle into places where we have not turned toward God. We're just turning from Him in the nicest way possible. But it does kind of start with obedience. When we meet with Jonah in chapter 3, he's going to be obedient to God. And we should be grateful for that. There are times that the notion of obedience takes us to a deeper understanding of who God is and we should not miss that. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, it says in verse 1. Get up, 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went. His get up and go got up and went. He stands up and when he goes to Nineveh, he is obedient. Obedient to what God would have him to do because after all, God has given him a command that Jonah would be for. That Jonah would like. Jonah hated the Ninevites. Now, we say that, and because we have made this a story about a large fish or a whale or a giraffe with flippers, we miss the very idea of why he would hate a people like this. The Ninevites were known for their absolute brutality. They flayed people. They buried people alive. They chopped off heads. I have some images that depict the notion of what was taking place in Nineveh. If you'll notice, that is not an early dentist. That is a picture of the way that a man's head was separated from his skull. And this is a reflection of the Assyrian people from whom we get the Ninevites. If that's not bad enough, another way that they would deal with those who were opposed to them is they would impale men and women. This is where the Romans would eventually get the idea of crucifixion. When the Assyrians, the Ninevites, would go into cities and they would take over said city, they were unlike other cultures in that those other cultures would go in and they would make the men servants to them. The Ninevites had nothing to do with that because they did not need your men. They were powerful warriors in their very own minds. Barbarians. So the men would just be completely wiped out. Their women and children would be made into slaves who were taken advantage of in every single way possible. The idea of Jonah hating the Ninevites is something that we really need to allow to sit with us. Because there were real reasons for him to hate them. Real reasons for him to be in opposition to him. Yet God has given him a command. God has let him know what he is to have for him to do. And Jonah gets to go to these people and he gets to give them a message. And the message that God gave in chapter 1, verse 1, is the exact same message that he gives him in chapter 3, verse 1. And the message is, you go and you tell those people they're condemned. You go and you let them know that judgment's coming. You you go and you let them know their time is up. You go and you point out to them the wickedness of their ways. You go. But Jonah is opposed to going because the idea of going means that there's a possibility, a grand possibility that this compassionate, gracious God is going to continue to be a compassionate, gracious God and he might just maybe give these Ninevites an opportunity to turn around. Page Benton Brown, Bible teacher, says this, the number one reason we will not be involved in what the Lord has called us to do in his kingdom is because of a resentment of what we don't have and what we don't get to do. In Jonah's heart, he thought there was the possibility that he would not get to see these people punished. That God would be the compassionate, gracious God who forgives to the thousandth generation. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, so he's turning to obedience. It's an extremely great city. It's a three-day walk. The word great there, it works in two ways. It means the city's huge. But the city's not just huge. It's also really important. Whatever you believe to be the most important city in the world, picture that. That's what Nineveh was because the king of the world lived in Nineveh at the time. A massively important city that's doing massively important things. Verse 4, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, if that's not enough, but that is enough, 
This place is going to be wiped out. He gets to say what he wants to say. He gets to exclaim to these people, destruction is coming. But that doesn't really convey what's taking place. As I point out regularly, I sound like a middle-aged woman ordering a chalupa at Taco Bell. So let me just give you a little bit of what's happening here. Tone matters. You and I all know that tone matters. If you've ever watched a movie with a Russian mafia, and if you haven't, you should. On VidAngel. When you watch it, you will hear the tone of what's taking place when they are dealing with people. The idea of saying things boldly, declaring things strongly. Next Sunday, after I preach here, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive to do a revival in East Texas. I asked my life group last week if they'd ever heard of a revival. So let me just ask you as a whole. I forget the amalgamation of people that we have in this room. If you have ever attended what we call a revival, could you raise your hand? Awesome. Not all of us, but some of us. If you don't know what a revival is, that's okay. In my life, I've preached numerous, and I have attended even more. They want the pastor to show up. They want him to scream. They want him to yell. They want him to sweat. I only give them one of the three. (laughs) The pastor will show up. He will preach hard because they want you to preach hard. They want people to turn away. They want to say things. A preacher shows up. He yells and screams and does every bit of this. And then the people go home and they go about their day. Jonah shows up in Nineveh. And when he shows up, he has a message for these people. But I'm going to read it in the original language and I'm going to attempt to reflect the tone of Jonah who is furious at Nineveh. Hear this. Ud arbim yuminin ne poket. That's the message. Un he is going into this city that he hates and loathes and he is saying to them 40 days from now this place will be destroyed demolished wiped out is a reflection of what they've been doing to the rest of the world wiping it out this city will be gone When you read through commentaries and you listen to messages based on that phrase, that's Jonah's sermon to Nineveh. That's a terrible sermon. Arbim, Yumunin, Nipoket. Hatred and vile for these people. Condemnation, judgment is coming upon you. Condemnation and judgment that you deserve. Condemnation and judgment that you should receive. Un me. There is no mention of numerous things. First of all, there's no mention of God. Who's going to judge us? Why is he going to judge us? There's no mention of hope. How do we escape this? In what way do we avoid this? There's no mention of delivery. This is what happens if you respond to me. Jonah goes in and he preaches the message that he wants to preach. And he's done. A message that is full of vile contempt. Then you get to verse 5. They believed God. 
does it mean they would believe God? They believed that God would bring judgment upon them. There's lots at play in this passage. There are numerous conversations as to what is happening. Did these Ninevites become Christians and now are they evangelical missionaries around the world? That's not what's taking place around our world right now. God held off of his punishment of Nineveh for 150 years because they believed him. The word believe is a really popular word in Christian situations like ours. I don't know if you've driven around Lake Jackson, but if you want to find a church, all that you have to do is open your eyes. If you throw an egg from your front door, you have more than likely egged a church. And you should work through that in your heart. They are everywhere. And if we were to have numerous conversations about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, I would imagine that the bulk of people that we interact with who have grown up in southern culture situations, Texas culture scenarios, would tell you that in some way they believe at least part of what it is that you say that you believe. But whenever we come across the word believe in the scriptures, it's doing more work than we are, do, than we are doing when we use it. The word believe always has expectation, always has steps, always has movement, always takes you from somewhere to somewhere. We're going to take communion today as a church. And if you are unfamiliar with communion, that means that we're going to take a little cup like this that has juice and a cracker in it. Now, I'm going to say to you as, a believe, as people who gather here today, when we do that, we are making a statement. What we are stating when we take communion is the notion of belief. Now, more often than not, churches very much like ours will take communion. And as they take said communion, there are numerous people in the room who are invited to be part of that. And if you have grown up in southern Christian culture, you may take communion and miss what you are actually saying. What we are saying as the people of God when we take communion is that we believe that the broken body of Jesus was, it, it was broken for us. We believe that the, <coughs> that the blood shed of Jesus was shed for us. And because we believe that, we trust that, we believe that that's called us to live in a uniquely different kind of way. So that means that we wrestle with our hearts as to what we're doing right now. That we will be turned around people. That our hearts will be focused and fixed on God. And if we're not careful, we may miss some things. You may miss the idea that the Jesus who we meet in Scripture has said this to you from Luke chapter 9 verse 23. If you are going to come after me, you take up your cross every day. And if you take communion and you do not consider where God is turning you to, then you miss the notion of it. And the scriptures would point out to you, you should wrestle heavily in your heart with why you would ever do that. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I need you to know this. If you take communion, it's a cracker. More than likely, it's stale. But as your pastor... As Jared and I pastor together, we just want to point out for you, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, please wrestle in your heart with what you're doing when you drink of that cup and eat that cracker. 
Because you were saying that you have aligned your life with the message and the hope of God. That you are taking up your cross every day. You're turning away from and turning to Jesus each and every moment in every single decision. So we fix our hearts on that. It's a statement when we take communion as believers that what we believe about Jesus when we are baptized, it's a reminder of that. N.T. Wright, Anglican theologian, you may not like him, that's okay. He probably wouldn't like you either. He says this, A religious event that does not change the meaning of light and dark, food and drink, field and city, war and peace, birth and death, slavery and freedom, has too superficial a connection with us. One that does not, that does, can create culture. Not a new mind, but a new world. The Ninevites are in this place. They've heard the message of Jonah. They proclaimed a fast and they dressed in sackcloth. I don't know if you've ever worn sackcloth. It doesn't sound awesome. It's goat hair. They put on goat hair. Have you hugged a goat? No, because it's a goat. From the greatest of them to the least. Because they're turning... And they turn to their brokenness. Verse 6, this whole message reaches through the city. It eventually goes to the commoners. The commoners are such a weird group in this passage because if they're anything like us, they didn't know what their government did. They didn't know what was taking place in, in the capital of, of Assyria. They didn't know what would happen when the people when they would go to war. They didn't know any of these things. They were blessed. They didn't even have Twitter. And as the message ran through the people, everyday Ninevites who did everyday jobs, working at as sheep herders, heard that judgment was coming, and they might have thought, why? Ninevite moms and dads heard that judgment was coming, and they thought, huh? Fast food workers in Nineveh thought, what are, why? We're, we're going to be judged. But this message, in 40 days you're going to be demolished, eventually gets to the king. Of all the Assyrians, the king was the worst. You found out how you're going to torture the people you took over from the king. And they were always brutal. Tiglath-Pileser ate puppies for breakfast. Horrible human. Probably not literally, but in my head, that's what happened. One Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, said this, I entered the city, its inhabitants I slaughtered like lambs. He would go on to say, because that's not enough, I will hack up the flesh and then carry it with me to show off in other countries. The king of Nineveh was horrific. Let me give you an image of one of the ways that the king... That's the king with the big hat. He's the biggest one because the king would always display himself in art as the most important, largest... The king of Assyria, larger than his enemies. He, if you can't tell, has a spear in a man's eyeball while he pulls at his face with two other men watching who are next. You would think that this man would not like the word of a king, of, of a god who he's never heard of speaking to him. How dare you? When we meet with the king here, God does something unexpected in his heart 
when the word reached the king, he got up from his throne. That's a big deal. He took off his robe. He covered himself in ashes because he had heard Ud Arbim Yomenin Nepoket. You're going to be demolished in 40 days. And the king of Nineveh does something that no one expects. When I wrestle through the story of Jonah, I wrestle through it because there, there doesn't seem to be a hero. Oh, God's the hero of the whole Bible. I get that. But there's no one here that seems great. One Bible commentator points out that when we get to verse 6, the king of Nineveh postures himself in a way that is the closest thing that we have to a Christ figure in the entire story of Jonah. He is in a ruling place. He takes off his royalty and everything that would symbolize that and condescends to where the common people are. He covers himself in ashes, reflective of making himself nothing. The king becomes like them in every way. And he urges his people to turn from their sin and turn toward the mercy of Yahweh. He says to them, by order of the king and his nobles, no person, no animal, no herd, no flock is to taste anything at all. This sin, why in the world are we making the cows behave? Because here we have this microcosmic action of the Bible that shows us this little place in Nineveh that's a great city, but in the grand scheme of things isn't all that great. And we see in this story that the sin of the Ninevites has impacted and affected the entirety of their world. They're told not to eat. They're told not to drink. The animals are to reflect the fact that they are sin. They are impacted by sin because sin breaks the whole world. But sin doesn't just break the whole world. It affects us directly. So the animals show the world is broken, but the response of the people shows that that sin is not just the world is broken, but we're shattered and torn it up, torn up by it. Why are the animals doing this? They're putting on display the grandeur of God. Look, animals don't sin. Contrary to what Gus, my dog, or Tex, or Baby Girl, or Zeke, or whatever you name your dog, your dog's not a sinner. You're a sinner. Your cat's not a sinner. It's a demon. It has nothing to do with this story. The sin of Nineveh has affected every crevice of the place. And here in this text, God has said, turn from your evil ways. That's what the king says to them. Turn from your evil ways. Change direction. Repent. The word says to us, in effect, they were going this way, and they got shoved the other way. 
So they turn around. Verse 9. Who knows? God may relent. He may turn from His burning anger and we won't perish. It's unique that God would meet us there. That God would meet us in a future promise. That God would meet us in an, 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 a hope that's not immediate. R.C. Sproul. Deceased pastor, beloved pastor, says this, Faith involves trusting in the future promises of God and waiting for them to be fulfilled. The people of Nineveh are told to turn from their evil ways. So they do. And the strangest thing happens with this God who has sent the message of complete annihilation through the prophet Jonah. God saw the actions and saw how they had turned from their evil ways. So he relented from the disaster he had threatened them with. And he didn't do it. We read through a story like this and we see God at work in this situation in the Middle East so, so many years ago. But I don't want us to miss where God is meeting us here. As he calls believing people to turn from your sin every day and take up your cross and follow him. As he speaks to us and points out the places, the dark places in our heart that we're choosing not to wrestle with. The battles in our own soul that we're choosing to to not deal with. I, I don't want us to miss that if you're not a believer in this room, that every moment God gives you more and more opportunity to turn from your sin and turn toward Him because God is a God who judges, but simultaneously this God is loving for us. And the reason God would even give a message of judgment is because He loves. The reason that God would speak to you as an unbeliever about the message of hope that we find in Jesus is because He loves you. He has no reason to do anything. He has no reason to do so otherwise. The world is judged because it is broken and sinful and full of that. But here's hope. I'm going to present that turn from and turn to. But for believing people in this room, and that's who I get to speak to more often than not. Would we wrestle with our own sin for just a minute? Because looking at the sins of others, it's, that's easy. What I'm the most blind to is where my heart is wicked. The things that I do that don't align with the idea that I would have a crucified Savior in my place. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to bow your head right now. The band is going to get in place. We're going to sing a song called Come to the Feast. If you are not a believer in this room, I invite you to place your trust in Jesus because God is good enough to point out that your sin, your sin is condemnable and there is hope in Him and Him alone.
It is in the crucifixion of Jesus, the condescending action of Jesus, whose attitude was to make himself nothing. That you could be right. That is your permission and your proxy to turn toward God. Jesus Christ. For my believing people in this room, I'm just going to ask for this to take place before you get up and you get a cup of communion stuff out of that basket. Could you ask God to expose the sin in your heart? Could you open your eyes to His exposure of it? Lord, would we as your people turn from our evil ways and repent? Because you are good to us. And will we see that in so doing we are taking up our cross today and we are following you?